everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Never has there been a more concise conversation to move you, your business, or your leadership forward. Michael Kanick is the author of Ruthless Consistency and the head of Making Strategy Happen. There were so many thoughtful takeaways in this week's episode, including an explanation of the poisons that inhibit success. Michael also puts the guys through a bit of a thought exercise on how they would put themselves out of business. Seeing yourself through the eyes of your competitors is just one of the tactics discussed. I especially liked when Michael said that people were, quote, bloodhounds for inconsistency, unquote. When reputation is so closely intertwined with leadership, being accountable to yourself is the first step to being perceived as reliable by everyone else. Learn how to apply these principles to your personal, professional, and coaching life. Here it is, episode 392. Tex. Luke, how are you? I'm doing fine. Oh, John. Oh, thanks for having me. John Wellborn, founder, CEO, friend of the podcast. <laughs> it's time for another episode of the Premier Podcast. In Strength and Conditioning. Ing. You can say I-N-G. Hmm. <laughs> we'll take it. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. We have a killer show today. We're going to be talking a little bit about some leadership principles, running an organization, changing the paradigm from, uh, let's say, more of a complacent type of group into this ruthlessly consistent winning group. But before we do, what we know is that we have the best listeners on the Internet. Truth. Is that true? True. The funniest. By far. Best sense of humor. Funniest, best sense of humor. They, I wonder where they get it from. Maybe listening to this podcast. They're Pro- great looking. They're strong. They're beautiful. Thanks, Luke. No, no, not you. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say. But that's right. This show, the intro to this show is dedicated to you, the listener. And we don't want anything in return except go to iTunes right now. We need a five-star review out of our most faithful and loyal listeners. And if you're up to it, give us a little review like this one. Stop playing yourself, just like Ben Greenfield, except not full of biohacking horse manure. Instead, packed with actionable advice, one-liners, and movie banter. Five five stars from I Call Game. Yeah, five stars from I Call Game. I actually like the one from DorkVest5000. (laughs) Can we uh, click on more? I'd like to read that one, too. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are currently on iTunes reading your actual reviews for Power Athlete Radio. We have been trending upward into the top 50 of the fitness... Uh oh, of the fitness category <laughs> in uh, iTunes. Yes. Okay, so DorkVest5000, he says if Christian Slater and The Rock had a love child, mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. If you're looking for good, naked, eating, semi clean, and expanding your Steven Seagal trivia knowledge, then this is the podcast for you. There are two types of millennials in the world those that. Got down with Limp Biscuit and Liars. Mm. <laughs> and I know Tex, Luke, and Callie call firmly or fall firmly with the former John, like a French version of the Oracle at Delphi bestows upon us his unmatched knowledge of calf raises and huh. rhetoric. Truly, Truly premier. Mm. So, God damn. Dork Best 5,000? I mean, (laughs) slow clap at that Uh, review. Yeah, that is a good one. You know what? I mean, uh, it's 
it's hard to dismiss genius, and there's no way I can on this one. And I, it doesn't shock me, it does not surprise me that we attract like-minded individuals who have the perfect tint of creativity, humor, and information. We well, call the, it inform, infotainment. The fact that he uh, did a play on uh, Power Man 5000 and went with Dork Vest 5000, I think, is, is probably pretty heady. Is he calling Luke and I Christian Slater in The Rock? Uh, I think he's just referring to you guys as lesser life forms. It doesn't make sense. I think he's saying that we are down with Limp Biscuit, which we all know is legit. Well, seeing as your nickname in college was Limp Brisket. That's right. Or was it high school? I can't remember anymore. <laughs> it's all just kind of melted all together. Nick, all these nicknames. Um, <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the show? What makes us different from um, biohack manure slangers out there in this podcast ether? People who are just trying to slang products. What makes us different? Let potential listeners know. Go ahead, head to iTunes, leave us a review, let us know what's up, and uh, you will not be disappointed. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are an early, or this is your first time listening, well, here's not what you're going to find, us slinging products. What we're going to be talking about today is leadership and ruthless consistency with author uh, Michael Kanick. So Michael is in the process of pushing this book out to publication, right, Tex? It, it'll be out by the time this episode okay, sweet. is live. Sweet. And he's the president of Making Strategy Happen. He's a former collegiate athlete and mm -hmm. football coach. Yeah. Yeah, so we had a tremendous conversation with him, and I think we were, like, weaving in and out of running a gym, running your family, running a company like Power Athlete. So we have a lot of, like, really great discussion in here. Outs, yeah, a lot, a lot of outs. great discussion in here and you're going to get a great sense of what his book's about and what Michael's about and man, like you're going to walk away with a few things to look in the mirror and ask yourself whether it's in the domain of your profession your uh, professional life, your personal life or um, within your coaching or anything, really. It's going to be great. Yeah, and as we say, coach needs a coach. And even if you're an up-and-comer, say a 20-something entering the workforce, mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunity of character to work on mm -hmm. before you face a leadership role. So you don't have to be in that role yet, mm -hmm. but you will be prepared to following Mike's book and this conversation. That's right. So let's get into it with Michael Canick and Ruthless Consistency. Ready? Set? Go. Go. Well, uh, Mike, we... Michael, we didn't want to come on here and just chat about sports audience crops, to be honest with you. We want to dig into uh, you, your work, your books. So maybe what we could do at this point is we'll just hand you the, the virtual mic and let you riff. Let us know about your background. How did you get into, um, into what you're doing now? And maybe talk to us a little bit about the ruthless consistency. Right. Thanks. Well, I think it's probably started from from my sports background, my athletic background, played sports from the time I was a kid. Football was my main sport uh, in university. I studied kinesiology. So I was just really interested in human movement and human performance and the psychology of human performance. Uh, I wasn't a big guy, you know, like six feet, 180 playing uh, college defensive back. So I had to rely a lot more on, you know, on, on the mind than just, you know, my physical physical talent. So I've always been interested in that. And and what I found, you know, playing sports and at a college level and uh, and and then coaching after that was just that focus, the alignment, the commitment to what we needed to achieve, what we wanted to achieve and having that shared commitment, that shared focus where everything was aligned with success uh, was just critical. 
So when I coached, we won a national championship. This was up in Canada, you know, playing college football, a great experience and uh, really cemented for me just the importance of, you know, focus alignment to whatever goals you want to achieve. I get into business and then, you know, lo and behold, everything in business has to do with performance. How do we get people to perform? So my focus in the corporate world when I was with FedEx and then I ran a consulting uh, a company with the Atlantic Consulting Group. And uh, since then, with my own practice, the past 18 years has been helping leaders and leadership teams turn ambition into strategy and strategy into reality. So it's to get stuff done, you know, and how do we align our people and our culture to get stuff done? So the basic premise is, you know, leaders who are ruthlessly consistent are leaders who build organizations that win. And in the book, I go into what that looks like in terms of right focus, right environment, right team and the right commitment. And then are you targeting specific size businesses, teams? Does it scale? Uh, do, you, yeah, do, you, so, do you find that it ventures its way back into sports at all? Like, do you find that coaches grasp this type of uh, leadership skill? Ab- absolutely. So for in terms of the size of the, the organizations, I focused on mid-market companies. So my career has been basically working with mid-market companies, not the multi-billion dollar companies at the high end and not just the startups that are just, you know, getting off the ground on the other. But those mid-market companies, they've got a leadership team. They're ambitious. They want to grow. They want to make it happen. So that's who I focused on. But the principles in the book apply to companies and organizations of all sizes. So really, the whole premises of ruthless consistency applies. Now, your question about does it apply in sports? Absolutely, because you hear coaches like uh, Nick Saban, for example, talking about the process, right? It's all about the process. And they're very detailed, very meticulous in everything they do. Uh, from recruitment to training to game day to preparation, all of that. So absolutely still applies in, you know, in sports and athletics uh, in any competitive field. Well, let's, let's start with the principles. I had the opportunity to work through your book, and you lead off with the reality and the three principles because you introduced those three, and what is this concept of reality that's so important you needed to lead off the book? Yeah, good question. I mean, the first one is what's more important than anything you do is everything you do. So you can't just piecemeal it. You can't just say, well, let's get our people through training and they'll be able to execute this. Or let's just provide some resources, they'll be able to execute it. Everything counts. So we've got to make sure the training, the resources, the communications, the incentives, the measurement, the goals, everything is aligned with winning, however we define that. And when I studied and looked at, you know, why does major change initiatives fail? What I found was that companies piecemealed it, right? They took an approach where they focused just on training or just on resources. When I looked at the companies that were successful at implementing strategic change, those were the companies that made sure all the arrows were consistently pointed in the right direction. So the first point is really what's more important than anything you do as a leader, as a coach, is everything you do because everything you do sends a message. Everything has to align with success. Second key point is that what you do as a leader isn't as important as what your people experience because they're the ones performing. They're the ones who've got to change. You might think this makes perfect sense to me, but if they don't see it the same way, it doesn't matter. And I found that often leaders fool themselves into thinking, hey, we told them, we communicated with them. We told them why this was important. Why aren't they doing it? Well, it's because that's not the message they're getting. So as leaders, we've got to continually be checking in with our people, 
as coaches, we've got to continually check in with our athletes. What are they perceiving? What are they seeing? What are they experiencing? And make sure that everything is pointed in the right direction from their perspective. The third element of reality I said, uh, I talk about is you're not as committed as you need to be yet. And I've asked thousands of, of leaders when I do presentations and workshops, you know, how committed are you to winning? And everybody says all in, 100% committed, totally committed. But by the time we get through the, the presentation or workshop, they realize they weren't as committed as they thought they were or need to be. So really, we have this view of commitment. We don't really appreciate what commitment is. And, you know, simply commitment is often doing the things we don't like to do or don't want to do, but the things we know we have to do if we're going to be successful. And it's the people who fight through that, you know, maybe when you don't feel like it, you know, doing that extra rep, taking that extra, that extra practice, that extra session, you know, those are the people who are successful. So that's the foundation, you know, that I build the book on those three principles and, you know, coming to grips with those then sets the platform for what you need to do to win. So where does that gap come from, that gap in commitment or understanding your level of commitment? And I think, you know, whether it's in business or within your family or your hobbies, we all want to be 100%. Maybe we believe we're 100%. Is this like a little bit of Dunning-Kruger that we haven't, like we just haven't, we don't have that person calling out the blind spots or we're not taking a long enough look in the mirror? How, how does that gap present itself? Well, I think often people don't see, don't have a benchmark as to what real commitment looks like. Mm -hmm. So people will say they're committed, but when we show a benchmark, and one of the examples I give in the book, great example is Lindsey Vaughn, the skier, who won more World Cup ski races than any woman in history. And you look at her level of commitment from a young age, and they talked about how she did, she skied tens of thousands more gates, slalom gates, than anybody else her age. When she was on the World Cup tour, her training schedule was maniacal. She would train every day, like five to six hours a day, you know, in season, off season, every day, in addition to 11 hours of sleep, a nap, you know, as well. Um, she dealt with a ton of injuries, but it was an intense commitment. And here's the key. Even when she was world champion, even when she won World Cups, she didn't let up. She didn't get complacent. She maintained that level of commitment. So often I think we don't have a benchmark. What does true commitment look like? And when people see that benchmark and when I present to them a benchmark, they say, oh, I guess I'm not as committed as I thought I was. It uh, reminds me, um, do you know who Vaughn Miller is? He's a linebacker. Sure. Uh, so Vaughn Miller had an interesting quote the other day that he, um, after watching Jordan's last dance, he went and analyzed his own career mm -hmm. and realized that he did not have the level of commitment that Jordan had and looking at it made him realize that he thought that what he was doing was to be the best, but that he didn't even scratch the surface. And it was kind of like MJ's this, a, a hard case study. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> well, uh, now there's I, some I, quarterbacks in some real big trouble. Well, I played against Vaughn and he was a good player, but not necessarily what I would consider a Hall of Fame player. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really interesting. I mean, he was an excellent player and somebody who definitely had a game plan and know where it was all the time um, and maybe would be in the Hall of Fame one day, but it was really interesting to like use that as the lens. And uh, I always thought as a, you know, as a football player and just as an athlete, that if you ever left feeling like you didn't do enough, then you would always have this unfulfilled feeling. And then, cause one day you're gonna retire, you're not gonna be able to, and to look back on your career and be like, if only I had worked harder, if only I'd analyzed, and that was something I was exactly. always really afraid of, to like look back and, and you know, and you, you see it all the time, uh, if only, 
you know, if I had done this, if only this, you know, if I hadn't got this. And I think, man, that's a that's a really tough way to look at it um, and uh, actually have the the guts to hold your career up to a guy like MJ. Uh, I, I just don't know if you could do it. And then but then I, I also wonder uh, watching. I started watching some of the uh, last dance stuff. Uh, was that his was that his initial drive or was his talent so high that it allowed him to compete at that level and then be able to take that? Like if he was not so talented, could he have attained that? So I wonder if sometimes people see like the speed in the car and think, man, I got good tires on this thing. Let me put my foot on the accelerator even more. Right. Well, you know, the way I generalize it is there are the naturals and there are the workers in sports. And you've got guys who are really hard workers and people who are naturals. But when you get the two of those together, naturals who work really hard, and Jerry Rice is another great example. If yeah. you know about Jerry Rice's oh, yeah. training regimen, super talented guy, super intense. So he was a worker natural, which led to just that absolutely outstanding career. You know, MJ, the same thing. And we've all seen it. You know, you've got the natural talent. Frankly, that can be a disadvantage because as you go up the funnel from high school to college to pro, everybody's got talent. And if you haven't built the traits and habits of being a worker and being committed, you're going to underperform. So, you know, traits, and we can talk about this as well, but for me, the traits a person has is very important. And that's what one of the things I look for. What kind of traits does the person have beyond just mere talent? Because talent gets you so far, but if they've got the right traits, that tells you the people are really going to, you know, go above and beyond. Well, what are the right traits? So one, you know, a number of companies have looked into, organizations have looked at what are the traits that correlate with success. I like something called the high potential traits inventory, which has been well validated against a number of, um, you know, with a number of studies. And they've identified six traits that are really critical to success. Uh, one is conscientiousness. So the people who are conscientious, you know, making sure they're doing the right things all the time. Uh, courage is another one being able to take risks, being able to take chances uh, and not being you know, too afraid to do that. Curiosity. So they always want to learn more and say, well, what if I try this instead of that? Will this make a difference? Uh, and John, as you know, in sports, it's all about improvement, right? You know, what am I doing to be better tomorrow than I was today? So that's really important. Can the people tolerate ambiguity? So that's a trait that's been found to be successful because often we're on uncertain, volatile environments much like we are today. How well are people at dealing with that ambiguity, not letting it, you know, overrun them, but them being able to process it? Is a big part of that being able to, and not, not to cut you off, but I also think um, uh, a lot of people don't deal with change well. So, like, I, I always think, like, uh, um, and I, I saw this in professional sports, um, that certain people, like, I can play this position, this is what I'm used to, I'm used to this, and then all of a sudden something gets changed and it completely throws them into a tailspin. Whereas for me, right. I kind of welcome change. Uh, exactly. So, like, I sometimes wonder if, like, a big part of that is people need to feel like a level of comfort and whatnot, and that amb- ambiguity uh, tends to be a strength. Like, if you can work in these kind of uncertain environments, that allows you to be more successful. Exactly right, John. And the way I like to say it is you want to be uncomfortable when you're comfortable, and you want to be comfortable when you're uncomfortable. You know, so if you're too comfortable, that's not good. You want to be uncomfortable if you're feeling too com- comfortable in what you're doing. On the other hand, embrace that discomfort. It's good if you're feeling stretched. It's good if you're outside your comfort zone. You want to get comfortable with that. So that's a good, that's exactly right. And then the uh, the uh, last trait is, I think I covered all of them uh, other than this, is competitiveness. People who are competitive. Now, here's what's important. That doesn't just have to be in sports. 
that can be in any field. If you show you're a competitive gamer, you've been a competitive chess player, you're a competitive uh, 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 musician, whatever it is, right? If you've been competitive, you've been in an environment where you've had to prove yourself, you've had to work to get stronger, and you've had to compete, whether it's to you know earn your way on the team or get a gig, uh, a musical gig, or win a gaming tournament or whatever, competitiveness is a key trait as well. In that space, Michael, have you seen, is, are there different components for former athletes maybe that were individual sport athletes versus team sport athletes in that, that context of competitiveness? It's a different kind of competitiveness. And, you know, you could generalize and say, well, team sport athletes have to get used to, you know, they have to sacrifice for the team. It's not all about me. I've got to do my role and play my job uh, and do my job to help the team as a whole. Individual athletes in general are a little more self-motivated because they don't have to rely on others. They're the ones who've had to either train or go out on those runs or whatever on their own. Mm -hmm. So there is that generalization, but in both cases, they've got to be competitive. I'm more interested in, are they naturals or are they workers? Mm -hmm. You know? Is there really a natural in business? Um, you know, I don't, you're not born as a natural, but by the time you get, you know, say through college and that, there are people I think whose minds are really tuned into business, you know, and really, you know, they can see opportunities, right? They can see what needs to be done. So, you know, to an extent, I think there are, uh, but those naturals don't get very far in business, John, if they're not willing to work. Sure. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. It's true. I, I feel one of the questions I sent is in line with success and failure. Can you explain yeah. the differences in the similarities between the two? Right. So if it's in achieving success and, and failure, in, a, in short, it's ruthless consistency. In any field, and I'm always testing this when I'm talking to people about, you know, how are you doing in your job? Are you successful? Why are you successful? What's making you successful? Or why do you think it's not working for you? Or if I'm looking at teams that are successful, it all comes down to that alignment. You know, do we have the right focus? Have we created the right environment? Have we got the right team? And is it all driven by the right commitment? So anything other than that total commitment increases the chances you're not going to be successful. And breaking it out, that also allows you to find a limitation or a weakness within your team or organization, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And those are just opportunities to improve. You know, so I, I'm more interested in constant improvement and growth rather than just, you know, performance at a point in time. You know, I want to know, okay, what are we learning? What are we doing to get stronger? What are we doing to get better? How are we improving? I'm more interested in that process rather than just that point in time. Well, big part of sport, at, at least in the team environment, from my experience, is game film in the game room, and we get feedback from there. Is there a version of that in business that we can provide our listeners? Is it just there the is. sales themselves? <laughs> there is, and businesses typically do a very poor job of that. And they use something called the performance review. You know, every year or every six months, they'll get together, I'm going to sit down with you, and I'm going to administer your performance review. Well, as a form of feedback, that's terrible. One, it's too long after the fact, after the performance, right? Can you imagine if at the end of the season, you know, a football coach said, okay, guys, let's look at the game film of all the games we played this year and let's see how we did. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be ridiculous, right? So number one in business, you know, we have this delayed feedback. 
you know, so it's not helpful at all. So one of the things I emphasize with people is smart feedback. It's got to be specific, measurable, uh, actionable, and real-time. People need real-time feedback. You know, that's much more meaningful than this delayed performance-reviewed feedback. Next thing, don't give feedback without also providing guidance. Because feedback is just looking in the past. Guidance is looking at the future. So rather than just saying, you know, well, geez, Tex, you know, you're, you didn't perform very well or you didn't do a good job, I'm a much better coach if I can say, well, have you considered doing this? What would happen if you tried that? Let's do this in instead and see if it makes a difference. So we've got to pair feedback and guidance and do it in real time as much as possible. So I like to say that, you know, you're not a manager, you're a coach. And the difference is coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Managers too often say, hey, go do this. I'll come back a year from now and tell you how you did. Hmm. It's ridiculous. Have you received any pushback when you start referring to these managers in the business environment as coaches? Do they not comprehend it or how they take it? They take it well. They take it well. And I think it's because in the last 10 years, a lot more has been written about business coaches and the term coaching has come into play in business and many executives hire business coaches. I find people have been very receptive to it. Do you have to change your outfit, like performance polos and maybe like polyester shorts? I'm in. <laughs> That's right. Come out in the field, the whistle, screaming <laughs> and yelling. A clipboard and a whistle, you're like, whoa. Motivational speeches every day mm -hmm. before sales calls? Yeah. <sighs> but then you need the office linebacker, like the old Terry Tate office linebacker in there. Like, well, you kill the Joe, <laughs> you make some out. Yeah, you're going to have the business coach, you need the business linebackers. <laughs> That's right. So you got something to text? Go. In, in line with the book, you also have a psychology of inconsistency, and I found this interesting because, and going back to the game film, mistakes are part of sport and growth. We even right. have reps in practice, but in business, is there opportunity for that, that practice, that reps, to help you get the mistakes out before you have a client that matters in front of you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we want to give people some basic training and coaching before we have them go perform. So if we just say go sell and we haven't provided any training or coaching, you know, they're going to make a lot more mistakes or aren't going to be as effective. Same thing if we throw them on the shop floor. So we want to give people sufficient front end training, but it can't just be in the front end. We've got to make sure there's a constant, again, feedback, guidance, development. So in a sense, every day is a, a game when you're in business. Every day you're doing something and are you learning and growing from that? So, and mistakes really are just a part of it. And what I, what I like to do, if somebody makes a mistake, I wanna ask two questions. Number one, what did you learn? Number two, what will you do differently next time? And if the person can answer those two questions, then great. So I want this constant learning. I want them thinking when something goes wrong, oh no, I, I made a mistake or, you know, oh, you know, how am I going to deal with this? Or I want to hide it from the boss. I want them thinking, what have I learned? What will I do differently next time? Because again, I want people improving. I want them getting stronger. So can you take us through maybe, we, we refer to the, the life cycle of an athlete within uh, the paradigm of our, our training. And one thing we'll talk about is, someone who's new to training or play, using the weight room to get better at football, let's say, they're not going to be following the same weight training program that John followed when he was in the NFL. So it's almost like dose-dependent, life cycle-specific training. Is, that a, is there a similar framework that needs to be accounted for 
when coming in and trying to shift the paradigm in some of these medium-sized businesses or just the, the thought process of some of these leaders who are, are aiming to get into this ruthless consistency? Yeah, so if you're, if you're asking, are there different approaches for different people, essentially? Is that what your sure, question is? Sure, based off whether it's experience or maybe their role in the organization or possibly even the age of the company. Yeah, ab absolutely there are. And this is a big challenge for leaders in business because think of it this way, to be a leader in business, you haven't gotten to that position based on your ability to adapt your approach of you know development, developing people. That's not what has gotten you to the leadership position. It's you've gotten results in your function, your location or what you're doing. So many have had to develop after the fact, oh, how do I coach my people? How do I develop them? And if there's one thing I'm always emphasizing with them, it's you have to be adaptive. What works with one player doesn't work with another. What works with one employee doesn't work with another. You know, so some, some employees, you know, they just need you to point them in the right direction, get out of the way, and they go make it happen. Others, every time they take a step, they're looking over their shoulder. Was that okay, boss? Did I do okay? Is that okay? Can I take another step? Right? So people need very different approaches. So great coaches, you know, like great leaders in business, know their people and ask you, what buttons do I need to push? What levers do I need to pull to get the best out of each person and really deal with them as individuals? This is not something that leaders are naturally, you know, are, are developed to do. And that's something, and certainly with this approach of ruthless consistency, we want to make sure we're developing them so they become more coaches, not just managers. And at what point, and I've, I've brought this up with some of um, some of our other guests who are in a similar um, uh, into similar type of coaching as you are, but like at what point does the onus come on the follower? Like a leader also needs good followers, you know what I mean? And uh, not everybody is a leader. Right. So right. like where's the where's the ruthless followership <laughs> you know like there's not a there's not a lot i guess that's just not a sexy type of thing is to be is to is to have like a followership genre of books or content um but maybe that's a part of being a leader i don't know where's the well, line it, drawn it's a great point because there's a uh, a quote by a guy named john maxwell who says if you think you're leading but nobody's following you're really just going for a walk <laughs> so, so followership you're not a leader unless you have that followership absolutely so at the end of the day you know the role of the leader is to develop the right focus create the right environment then when he or she does that then you'll know if you have the right team mm -hmm. often you won't know if you have the right team or the right players in the team until you've created the right focus and the right environment too often i see leaders saying oh that person's not doing a good job and my response is, well, what kind of environment did you create? Did you, did you give them clear expectations? Do they understand how those expectations support the goal? Do they have the skills to do the job? Do they have the resources to do it? Are the measure, do they have the feedback and guidance, the measures to tell them? What are you doing as a leader to create that right environment? However, if as a leader, you've done all those things, you've developed the right focus, you've created the right environment, and if someone isn't getting the job done, then it's the person. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the onus is on the person, but I like to start with the leader because leaders first have to take responsibility for the focus, the environment. Give your people a fair chance to succeed. Give your people a fair chance to succeed, then let them perform and then let the chips fall where they may. 
I've been watching a lot of NBA. It's back. It's fun. And it's interesting to see the teams because now you don't have these crowds and you can hear the teams start to get up for each other and you can visually see them get excited. So it's interesting to watch certain teams that the bench action is not very into it and motivated. Mm -hmm. And then you get some teams that are having success and progress that they weren't experiencing before and they are excited to be in close quarters together and I, I think some teams are not either happy with their coach or happy with their team because they are not happy to be with each other they're not following anybody well, uh, also they're also stuck in an environment yeah. where they're with each other that's, uh, that's like, what I'm getting at yeah, yeah like they're in the bubble so there's no way to get away so, I mean, you really have to enjoy what you're doing and enjoy the people you're around to be able to spend right. it because there's no way to escape. I mean, that was uh, – I saw one of the quotes from one of the NBA guys, like, there's nowhere to hide. Like, <laughs> like I can't turn this off and leave and drive home. And, do, like, I'm plugged in 24 hours a day. And I think uh, a lot of guys um, aren't prepared for it. I, you know? I think right. guys are getting flashbacks to college because it's, it's fun to see their excitement for each other just as a – I don't know, a viewer. It's interesting. Well, I mean, the, uh, because, yeah, like they don't have 30,000 fans to get, to get them juiced well, up and excited and to he, go out there and play. Here's my bias with one of LeBron's quotes because he's not doing as well as the greatest, air quotes, basketball player of all time, mm -hmm. speaking of MJ. But he's saying it's not the same because there's no crowd to play for. And you get other guys that are like, no, I'm cool, this is great. Well, uh, and I'll just tell you from my personal experience, there were certain people that played for the love of the crowd. They loved to hear the crowd roar, and it was like that was what they lived for. And then there were other people like me who never heard the crowd. I never noticed that there were people. And I, I remember Freddie Camacho hit me up and said, how would you feel to play without people? And I was like, I'd be able to do the exact same. Like, but I knew that there were guys that like their whole deal was playing in front. They wanted to hear people cheer their names. And I think that uh, I think that's dangerous for one reason is when you go to retire it's very hard to retire and walk away because nobody's going to cheer your name when you don't hear it then all of a sudden you transition out and people are like oh you seem to have transitioned fine i'm like well i never heard the crowd but if you there, guys have heard me say that if there's no crowd in philly john how would you get your coaching <laughs> huh is that like a uh <laughs> the uh the fun thing about all the obese drunk coaches out uh, there yeah a lot of our quarterbacks <laughs> The one thing, though, that, that I, I hope will change, and I knew this as a player, um, the amount of racial slurs that would come out of these, like, I, like I'd sit there and be like, holy You can't shit. say that. I was yeah. like, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, like, this was in the earlier 2000s when I played in Philly. Like, now I'm like, I don't, I don't think you could say that stuff then. You sure as hell can't say that stuff now. Yeah. Hey. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, but, you know, like, like with sports, everybody thinks anybody that's ever shot a basket or thrown a football thinks they're an expert. And, um, well, we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, the best, co like, man, like uh, you, you said something that really resonated in that. Um, and I think it was Patton that said, you know, there's uh, there's different ways to motivate different men. And the, the true mark of a leader is being able to motivate to find each individual and be able to motivate them and figure out what what helps them tick. Uh, for me, I was just a big fan of like, just show me the game plan. Let me know that's the best game plan. Give me the best opportunity to learn it. And then just like get out of the way and let me go do my job. And right. uh, there were other guys, like you said, that like, you know, needed some form of like handholding every step of the way. And um, I always thought that like that, those are the type of people I tended to avoid. You know, you want people that are like, you know, you don't have to call them like they're going to wake up, they're going to get their training, they're going to do all the things that they should be. And I remember a coach made an interesting point once. He's like, that's a professional. 
when somebody is a professional, you don't have to motivate them. They understand, you know, why they're doing this. Is that something that uh, is hard to kind of break into the? And I, I, I know in the NFL it was great because uh, if you weren't a professional, you didn't last very long. So the guys that get to play seven, eight, nine, ten years are all professionals, and they understand how the game is played. I sometimes wonder in business uh, where there isn't as well like. If I lost on Sunday, I had to show up on Monday and film, and there was a good chance that I might not be there if I did poorly. Whereas right. in business, I feel like we don't do that. Like we allow people a long time of fluttering and not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, is there a way for us to uh, like take that kind of professional approach and being like, I'm paying you a professional wage to do a professional job. Uh, I'm going to put this, um, you know, the Otis on you to be that professional. And then how do I hold them to that standard? Yeah, that's a great question, John. And I'll tell you, I wrestled with that, you know, going from, you know, uh, playing, coaching college uh, football into business. People didn't have the same level of commitment. They've got, you know, their stuff doing they're doing in the weekends, the evenings, their family and one thing or another, which which is fine. But there wasn't the same focus. So can we bring that into to business? Not to the same extent as in as in sports. So we can't get to a point where we say, well, if you don't perform this week, you're gone next week. Right. It, it just doesn't work like that. But I do think you can hold people constructively accountable and something I emphasize a lot with leaders holding their people constructively accountable. Because to your point, we tolerate things and tolerate things and they dribble on. Why does this happen? Well, leaders don't want to deal with that discomfort. Right. It's uncomfortable. It's conflict. It's confrontation. So I like to reframe their thinking that accountability is a positive thing. Because the reason you're holding people accountable isn't to, isn't to beat them up, to bully them, to berate them. The reason you're doing it is to help them improve, get better, perform better. So it's a positive thing. So I want to reframe the thinking of leaders that accountability is a positive thing. That's why I call it constructive accountability. We're doing it not destructively, constructively. So I do want to constructively confront your performance. I want to say, now John, here's what we, here's what the, the numbers are telling us, right? John, I know you're better than that, and you can do this. Let's talk about what's going on, right? What's underlying this? So I'm not saying you're a bad guy. I'm not saying I don't like you. I'm saying let's really dive into this and understand this, what's happening here, what's influencing this, what's causing this. Then the key is, as a coach, I say, John, how can I support you? How can I help you? That takes the pressure off of you and lets you know I'm not just you know out to get you. I'm I'm here as a coach. I'm committed to this. And then you know I may have to do some things as a coach to help you. Then I can convey my expectations to you, John. Here are my expectations. Here's what we need to see. So I don't think we can totally transfer that that mindset from sports to business, but I think we can do a lot better than we've done in the past. And that is if we hold people constructively accountable. And then what would be the destructively accountable? Yeah, well, we've seen, I'm sure we've all seen it with a boss who, you know, runs around berating people or insulting them or, you know, or, or just being dismissive towards them or, or bullying them, right? So, I mean, those are the kinds of destructive behaviors. And the irony is that doesn't get more performance out of people. It gets less performance, right? You're not trying to squash the human spirit. You want to... You wanna, um, Elevate. Let me give you a quick example. It just came to mind. Years ago in the NFL, and there was a game, I talk about this in the book, between the um, Seahawks and the Cardinals. Ended in a 6-6 tie. Both kickers missed what should have been a game-winning field goal in overtime, right? So, you know, pretty bad. Anyways, they interview the two coaches after the game. They interview Arians with the cards, and they say, well, what do you think? Your kicker missed it. 
He goes, you know what? Make it. This ain't high school. You pay to make it. Make the kick. They interview Pete Carroll. What does Pete Carroll say? Uh, we he have is, a lot, uh, missed a lot of opportunities to score a lot of points. And if we come down to the final kick, then we probably didn't do the things that we needed to earlier in the game. Right. He's, he said that. And he also said, you know what? He's made a lot of kicks for us, for us in the past. He's going to make a lot of kicks for us going forward. Yeah. I love him. He's our guy. That's what he says. Yeah. So you think, you know, in terms of accountability, what's going to get better performance out of the player in the future? Yeah, the Pete Carroll approach. And I guess, Michael, you, you, you've worked with plenty of organizations. Uh, and our experience here, I think, with the relatively limited in terms of different jobs and roles. But is that a pretty common thing in the workplace to have that bully boss? I feel like I see that all the time in the movies. Like, that's a classic character in, like, office space. Horrible bosses. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> yeah, like, horrible bosses. But is that, like, are people really suffering from leadership like that out in, in these organizations? And I guess, I mean, no names, obviously, but that's a real thing. <laughs> right. So it's not, it's not frequent. You know, it's not anything close to the norm. Sure. But surprisingly there's still more of it than you'd think there would be and i would imagine that a form of uh, destructive um accountability yeah. is just a lack of it as well or, or does well, that does that fall under a different silo i put that under a different silo you know basically that's uh that's abandonment you know that's managers abandoning their employees mm -hmm. and uh and I'll, ch I'll challenge leaders and say, you know what, here's the pain that your organization will suffer if you don't hold people constructively accountable. Because often why they don't do it is the, the quote, the pain, the discomfort of holding them accountable. I want them to know that there's a greater pain if they don't hold people accountable. One, they're going to demotivate everyone else. That's the real cost, because if I don't hold you accountable, everybody else is saying, hey, why are you tolerating that? Why are you putting up with that? So you demote everyone else, you kill your credibility as a leader, you undermine your performance. So there are a lot of negative things that happen if you as a leader don't hold people constructively accountable. So I wanna sear into the minds of leaders, is the, are you willing to accept this? Because this is what you're doing if you don't hold people constructively accountable. They have to see the difference. I think uh, coming from the NFL, um, the majority of people I've met would not do very well playing in an NFL <laughs> environment with coaches and the way the leadership works. Uh, mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting, and I've told these guys, I'm like, man, like um, it's something where you almost kind of look at it like survival. Um, you know, yeah. I have to survive this encounter. I have to survive this. You know, I'm going to go out and like you have to really kind of alter your thinking, and especially like where here people talk about bosses and whatever. I'm like. <laughs> Dude, you guys don't even know what abusive is. And, um, you know, and like people always ask me, like, oh, who's your favorite coach? I mean, I played for Dick Vermeil, who was very hands on. I played for Belichick right. and Andy Reid. Um, I played for uh, Herm Edwards. And I like the one person I really appreciated was um, I kind of liked Bill Belichick's kind of no nonsense. But also that was at the end of my career when I was already a vet. I'd already started and played a long time. Like I was used to somebody just like, this is what we expect. This is the standard. Here's the game plan. Go execute it. If you can't execute it, I'll find somebody else. I, and right. I wonder for like young guys, like um, I just read an interesting one uh, about Cam Newton going and playing for Belichick. Uh, there was a there, there was a player who is a former Patriots guy who played with Cam Newton who chimed in and was like, uh, Cam has been treated very well, and uh, Belichick treats. I mean, you know, the only person he probably treated well was Brady, but I mean, he treated us the same way he treated the janitor, and I mean, like everybody was treated the same. Like you were all, you know, kind of bullshit in, right. in Belichick's eyes. So I'm wondering with a guy like Cam Newton, if he takes that approach or kind of takes the Tom Brady approach, 
but it may, he may be ready for that. Who, Cam Newton? Yeah, former MVP. Now he's fallen so. from grace. I don't know. I, I do not. But I, I think Cam Newton. It'd be a great storyline. Uh, yeah, that sounds like that out of a movie. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is uh, like, like they're like, what was the, um, God, like they always have these like kind of like, uh, the, you know, the older gruff mentor and like, you know, the young brash kid who kind of melts the ice, kind of like secondhand lions and some of those other movies. Like I, I could see that happening. Uh, but I could also. Well, he, he, here's the deal in that uh, respect to that storyline, John. He's the vet. He's the oldest guy, oldest quarterback in the room. So he's got a mentor, potentially some young, terrible kids that are new to the team. Or it's his. Like, he doesn't have a lot of competition breathing down his neck. It's on him to yeah. to succeed. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's going to be good. I'm, I'm excited for the NFL with the, with the shakeup and, uh, and who's out there. Right. So, John, let me ask you this. You, you, you weren't that confident about you know, how Newton will do. Is there an analogy with Randy Moss? There are a lot of questions when Moss went to the sure. uh, the Patriots as well. You know, he had a bit of a checkered uh, career in terms of uh, his conduct and attitude. But, you know, for the time he was with the Patriots, my understanding was actually he, he fit in quite well. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Belichick's the type of guy, if you play at a high level, um, he's more than happy to have you there. And uh, right. I think for especially for a guy like Randy Moss, who uh, probably needed that, like, um, you know, I mean, he like such a he, he was actually at the Patriots was when I was there. So I, I know Randy, okay. um, but such an interesting past, like, you know, like here, you know, and just the kind of the you know trials and tribulations and, uh, you know, the missteps and whatnot through college and then also into the NFL and the problems. But I also think he got to the point where he realized like I'm not going to get very, very, uh, very many more chances. And, yeah. you know, so I think like he was ready for that. Um, I just, you know, I, I guess time will tell, but I, I remember when he originally went to the Patriots thinking like this ain't going to be good. And he ended up yeah. having an amazing career. And really that's what allowed him to catapult. Now he's on TV and, you know, gives right. awful commentaries and, you know, and uh, <laughs> is really shitty, <laughs> but he's Randy Moss. So let's have him on. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. <laughs> hey, I, I, have you guys listened to him as a as no. a comment? Oh, it's it's not good. Uh, I'm a big Terry and Howie guy. Uh, you know, you know the only guy what? who what are, was oh, that? first of all, uh, R- Romo's excellent, and the other guy, it's usually the quarterback. Steve Young always very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Aikman, well, Aikman's always great. Yeah, a- Aikman's. I, great I too. hear the greater the interview. So when they are in there playing in heyday, and if they get along great and give some good commentary mm-hmm. in their interviews and p- play along they lead to a great commentator so networks and people that look for good commentators like tony romo they, they find in their inner so yeah. the next big name john and you're gonna hate this philip rivers that's the talk it's the uh, buzz I, great interview uh i i have no doubt philip rivers will be a good color commentator with that yeah. twang i'm all cutler all day Jay Cut- uh, bring you know Jay Cutler into the commentator <laughs> I, booth. I hated Jay Cutler as a football player. I like Jay Cutler. Hey. Now, uh, dude has a huge farm. He just wants to raise his chickens and live his life. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge Cutler fan now. I, okay. I've been preaching it since day one. <laughs> Michael, I got a question. We're, sure. we're, we're talking about Belichick and, and Andy Reid and Pete Carroll, big names that I imagine businesses go to for inspiration, for leadership and talks and, and bring them in. Who are the big leaders in business? I know Steve Jobs, but he probably is not the best reference of how to lead. So who are examples that we would go to, aside from yourself, that can help us learn to lead 
in the business respect. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There used to be iconic names that people would go to as far as that, like Jack Welch, if you remember Jack from a GE. People say, oh, he's the oh, guy yeah. around leadership. Um, but what's happened in recent years, people look more towards people who are visionaries, leaders who are visionaries rather than great leaders. Mm-hmm. So you hear about, you know, Elon Musk, right? People talk about him a lot, um, but never about his, his leadership capabilities. I don't know if he's a good leader or a poor leader or whatever. So now in business, there aren't those iconic names that there used to be as far as leadership, which is interesting. Um, so I, I couldn't point to. Why is that? Yeah. Why is that? Um, I don't know. Innovation has really, has really become the thing and what's new and exciting and what's on the forefront. So I think that that may be why people have gotten enamored with, you know, leaders of the visionary, the new thing coming, as opposed to those who are just, you know, great leaders and organizations. Is, is that going to be a trap? Like we're falling for the, the big sexy versus the consistent well, bring us home. Uh, like uh, uh, I think Elon Musk is a really interesting person uh, just yeah. in general. But like his ability to gamble and like the gambles that he's you know put on from everything from like eBay. And the, I mean, it's pretty amazing to see his track record. But like I've never, as he said it, I'm like, man, I don't think I've ever read anything that talked about him as in terms of leadership. It was more like a a visionary, like, hey, I have this idea and I'm going to brute force this thing in. And uh, I mean, I assume he surrounds himself with intelligent people that maybe, you know, can motivate. But you never hear that about him. No, you don't. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, is it a trap? It is a bit because we think everything has to be, you know, a new sexy startup and, you know, have this great, you know, unique vision for the future. I basically made my career working with some of the best companies you would have never heard of. These are great mid-market companies, have evolved over time, have done a great job. But, you know, they're not the Googles. They're not the uh, they're not the Starbucks. They're not the, you know, the the Teslas. Um, But the bulk of the economy isn't those, you know, sex few sexy names it's the companies that are ruthlessly consistent and making sure they're evolving they're delivering they're executing and they get in place the right team to keep fueling it i see an analogy for our listeners the it's the division one strength coach everybody wants to go to these big powerhouse schools go and intern at the alabama versus being their own head coach at a small division three school in northern virginia for example (laughs) so it's this big sexy that actually leads to a detriment and stall of their development because they're not in challenging stressful leadership roles even though it's not on a big stage well i mean but uh it's not like i so when i graduated berkeley um my roommate at the time he graduated haas business school and he i think he went in and i think they're not even uh he went to work for anderson consulting and worked like 100 hour weeks and like basically like drove this dude i mean like they that's what they do they bring these kids out of college and just work these kids to death and right. uh but like that was like kind of like a badge of um, of honor that you yeah. could like make it through this for two or three years a girl i knew same deal went to new york she pretty much had like a nervous breakdown after a year and i think she's like a pottery teacher now um, Lucky. But, yeah. <laughs> but like that kind of, uh, you know, cutting your teeth, that badge of honor. I mean, I think that's like the expectation that you're going to go there and, you know, you're going to do this awful thing and you're going to somehow come, you know, come out the other side, which is pretty much what happens in the strength coaching deal. Like you have to go in and, you know, these guys, and it's pretty interesting. Any, any of the strength coaches we've had, like always talk about, you know, here's how I came up. This is how I cut my teeth. And there's always some like challenge, not like, Oh, everything was so easy. I had so much fun. It was great. Now I'm here. You know, like there, like there always is, 
um, there's always a um, an origin story that looks like some form of, of challenge, yeah, like gritty. Yeah, like yeah. I, I mean, and, and I'm sure you could talk about this. I mean, you've probably interviewed so many of these great leaders and these different people that were so successful. Is there always some gritty origin story behind every one of them? I mean, is anybody being like, I don't know, my dad left me all this money and I just was investing it. Now I have this other great company and I've never worked a single hard day in my life. Like, is there something like that? Yeah, often there is, not always, but often there's that, that kind of story or, or what I call a triggering event. Mm-hmm. Some triggering event that goes boom and they say, you know what, I've got to change my path or I've got to do something different here. And that could be a personal or professional thing. Hard to predict what's going to cause that sometimes. Um, but on the other hand, if somebody's had things too cushy and their dad handed them the business, well, often they're not going to be you know, highly driven to take it to the next level. Now, that's not all the time, so I don't want to overgeneralize. Uh, but you know, there can be benefit to that, that gritty story or that triggering event. Um, and then some of it's just inexplicable. Some people are just very ambitious and want to keep pushing and stretching. In the book, you talk about the right focus. Is Can you introduce those questions to determine if the focus is right? And sub-question, is there potential issue if something is handed to you that you don't gain the right focus? Right. So the, the three questions I look at as far as focus are what, why, and how. What must we achieve? Why must we achieve it? How will we achieve it? And if we have those three in total, and it has to be in total, now we've, now we've got the right focus. So the what is, you know, it's easy to come up with a big what, this big goal. Well, we want to grow to be a $100 million company. So my question is why? Why 100 million? Why not 200 million? Why not 50 million? Why not 73 million? You know, having a number is fine, but are you willing to do what it takes to get there? Because you better be clear on the why. Because if you're not clear on the why, then when you come across obstacles and struggles and all this, then, you know, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe it's easy for me to quit. So the why is what propels you through this. You know, so it's fine to say, for example, what I want, I want to be a pro football player, right? Well, why? You know, how compelling is that to you, right? Are you willing to do what it takes to get there? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to train? Are you willing to do all the things it takes just for the chance of getting there? Then once you're clear on that, having the how, because uh, having a what, a goal without a plan, a how, that's just a dream, right? So beyond just a dream, you've got to make it reality. So what are the steps I need to take? What is my game plan to get there, to get from you know A to Z? And, you know, the how is what you need to then manage daily, weekly, monthly. So I look at my goals every day and then I'm clear on and I'm clear on what those goals are. And then I ask myself, what do I have to do today to achieve that, to move forward, to make progress towards achieving that? So what and high without a how is just a dream. If you've got the what and how without the why, nothing's going to propel you through the difficult times. And if you're not clear on the what, then you could be going in any direction. So you really do do need all three. You got to be clear. What do I need to achieve? Why is this important? And then how am I going to get there? And then to tie back to something you talked about way earlier, which was, you know, I think under when we were talking about like the reality and winning and setting up the almost setting up the goalposts, so to speak, for the organization. Is right. this the, the framework for that? Does the what dictate and monitor whether or not we're winning, or is it the why and the how? Okay, so what monitors it, so with each what, I wanna have what are the quantitative goals, the numerical goals associated with that, right? 
so often the what might be more, let's say, we want to be a viable, thriving company that's, you know, one of the top players in our industry. Okay, what are the numerical goals that will tell us if we're getting there? Is it market share? Is it revenue growth? Is it profit growth? So typically those goals are associated with the what, but they are not the what in itself. Got it. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there is a bit of like a taxonomy or a hierarchy here in terms right. of more of like the subjective or moonshot type of um, yeah. values or virtues that you're trying to attain as an organization under then talking about alignment and focus. And I think as you go down, everything's still pointing up towards that. And it's getting more granular as you go down and measurable. Exactly. You're going from the general to the specific, from the more conceptual to the actionable, but all of it has to be aligned. So that word is absolutely key. Alignment is everything aligned. So when you're doing those granular things, you say, why am I bothering do this? Well, it's so we can execute that strategy. Well, why are we doing bothering with that? Well, so we can accomplish that objective. Why are we doing that? It's so we can win as a company. So, so there is that taxonomy. It's got to be clear. It sounds like a road trip almost. Like, hey, I want to get to California. All right, well, yeah. how are we going to get there? Yeah, roadmap. Yeah. yeah, like what's the roadmap? What vehicle are we going to take? Like what do we have to look at? Like do we have to, how often do we have to stop? Do we need to get, you know, and then all the specifics. But like it all starts with like, hey, let's take a trip. Like, let's get from right. here to point A to point B. And, and the why, why you have to answer is why California? Because if I'm getting tired of driving, you know, what's going to keep me from saying, well, let's just stop in Las Vegas. This seems good enough. Yeah. So there's a great burger place in California. <laughs> I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> Well, no, they actually moved to Texas, too. Yeah, in and out. Yeah. Well, there's casinos in Vegas, so I'm more than happy to stop there on the way to California. <laughs> you know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a Power Athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief. Seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. 
And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. <laughs> Michael, you know, as, you, uh, as you're going through this, it sounds like a lot of your... A lot of this makes sense in term in like these private mid-tier companies. Have you ever been courted by any sort of government groups, whether it's school districts, military, and tried to have this conversation with those types of organizations? I have not done this with government groups, mm-hmm. and I can imagine a unique set of challenges. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> yeah, none of this applies. <laughs> it should. I'll <laughs> yeah, we we worked uh, done some government contracting and worked in some. Uh, I guess what's the right term for that? The public, the, the public. It's not necessarily the public, public sector, sector. Yeah. but it's yeah. more like the government mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, but what you do see, you do see this more in like the tier one organizations in that space. Is yeah. there they they operate a little autonomously or independent of the the such the bureaucratic red tape that the big groups big army or you know they that they have to work within so and i also think like even within the school districts or like law enforcement a lot of this stuff could be so valuable but it just for whatever reason doesn't hit well you know? I, I was thinking about like aligning expectations like um uh, i don't know if you saw but seattle voted uh their um what is it? Their uh, city council voted to defund the police. Cali texted me this morning. Oh, it's, it went through. Yeah, so it went through. Uh, so one of our uh, one of our power athlete coaches uh, ended up moving to Seattle, and she's a police officer in Seattle. She's actually on maternity leave right now, but um, she's like, honestly, I watched it last night, and they referred to the police as uh, uh, jackboot thug. Like there was a really interesting, like uh, oppressive uh, neo, like like the term. She's like, if I hadn't seen it myself, I would not have believed that they would reference the police like this. And Seattle Jesus. probably has the lowest amount of police officers to mm-hmm. patrol uh, officers. officers per capita than mm-hmm. any other major city, and they're basically cutting it by fifty percent. And um, you know, so I'm like lo- looking at this organization where you're like, I don't know a single resident or taxpayer that's like, yeah, you know, what we need less police. Right. But well, I mean, they're out there. Yeah. I mean, it seems it seems crazy to me, but like that's kind of like a misaligning of expectations. I, I mean, so then like, you know, now they're going to try to do, you know, uh, it's just, yeah, um, hopefully it works. And that place doesn't turn <laughs> into escape from New York. But, yeah, I was just thinking about like misaligning expectations. Yeah. Here she is and has her job and the chief of police can't even save their jobs because some third party is basically making the decision on this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like I think when you get into like um uh, like the public sector, whether it be like in government or whatnot, like there's a whole bunch of extraneous factors that you can't yeah. necessarily depend upon. Whereas in a company like, you know, hey, the three of us are sitting here and we make a decision to go in a certain direction. You know, it's kind of like lead, follow or get out of the way. Whereas sometimes when you're not in charge of your own destiny, sometimes things aren't happening. Right. Michael, I've got a question. Sure. You introduced and I feel this is since we just took a turn to negative town. Whoa, whoa. You introduce four poisons that keep your organization from changing. Mm. Maybe this is applicable to Seattle Police Department. So, Callie, listen up. What are those four? The four poisons that keep organizations from changing. Number one, complacency. 
just complacency. And it's kind of human nature, right? We do things, we get comfortable, we get into patterns, we just become more complacent. The second one is if you add a dash of ego to that, it becomes arrogance, where you start feeling superior, right? Oh, we've got it figured out, right? We're on top of things. Well, the moment you start thinking that, you become vulnerable. The third one's what I call the fallacy of extrapolation, which is basically we take what's going on today and we extrapolate that into the future and think things will keep going as they're going today. Oh, the stock market's going up, it'll continue to go up. Oh, this is uh, you know going this way, it'll continue to go this way, right? We think you know things go in a straight line and in fact, they don't. And then the fourth poison is this psychological inertia psychological inertia and basically that is you know where we just you know go to the lowest it's like the easiest path the easiest path of thinking and doing and the example i give is you know if if you take a shower every day right i'll bet in that shower you're not making conscious decisions oh do i wash my left arm before my right arm or my right arm before my left arm you just shower as you always shower right well, that's a psychological inertia. You don't need to be conscious about what you're doing. You've just got into the subconscious groove. Well, getting into that subconscious groove is often what keeps us from changing. We keep doing things as we've done them, like we've done them, and we're going to we're going to keep doing them that way until something forces us out of that. So, how can you give an example of how that might manifest itself in a business environment? And then, what what are some tools that you give to disrupt that? Right. So in businesses, I mean, we've seen companies come and go that once very successful that didn't change. So Blockbuster, right? Mm. Blockbuster, very successful company, but they were very slow to go to streaming, right? Netflix got into that area, right? Blockbuster was slow to react. Boom. Blockbuster's gone. Did you know Blockbuster um, could have bought Netflix for like $15 million? Whoa. Oh, actually, I didn't, did not know that. Yeah, there's, um, you might have to check the numbers on that because I don't know if it was exactly, but there was an opportunity where or Netflix pitched themselves to Blockbuster to buy, mm. and Blockbuster scoffed at them and did not buy them, mm-hmm. yeah. which I yeah. think is like a really interesting idea of like, you know, like what works today isn't going to necessarily work in five years and to mm-hmm. try to stay ahead of the crew. I mean, for our business, I mean, we saw that happen too. I mean, we did really started this company as a traveling in-person seminar business. And then all of okay. a sudden we saw that as it was peaking, start to do this. And then we kind of pivoted in some different directions, not realizing that that was sustainable. Yeah. And, um, that's something I, I never want to be in a position where like feeling like we should have zigged when we needed to zag, you know. And, and business is filled with those stories. Uh, another one comes to mind, uh, BlackBerry. You might remember oh, when yeah. BlackBerry was a really big deal. People loved their BlackBerries. They were super loyal to them. They promoted them. But the moment something came along that changed the value equation, the iPhone, and oh, now I've got all this media and I can browse and I can take photos and I can do all this, boom, totally changed the game. So, you know, we have to get over this arrogance that we're the best, that we've got it figured out. We have to get over this, you know, this idea that things aren't going to change. They're going to keep going in a straight line. We've got to keep this 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 tension, this productive tension and productive paranoia that keeps driving us to change. So, you know, when I'm working with businesses, the first thing I do is, you know, if we're looking at our strategy, I want to focus on the why, why must we change? And we come up with two statements. One, what is the pain of not changing and what is the gain if we do change? Let's document, let's articulate, what is the pain? If we don't change X, what is the pain we're going to suffer? And if we do change it, what is the gain we're going to realize? 
And we review those statements every month just to make clear, you know, if people are st we're starting to bog down, hey, people, remember, we said if we don't do this, here's the pain we're going to suffer. Is that acceptable? Are you willing to accept that? No. <laughs> no, that's right. So I want that compelling case for change that we're reviewing, you know, every month. And what's key is the contrast between pain and gain. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into all the psychological research here, but in terms of incentivizing performance, it's that paired combination of a pain if we don't do something and a gain if we do. It's the pair that's most powerful. As I'm looking back at the, the four poisons here, Michael, I feel like there's case studies out there where some of these things can be attributed to like someone's breakthrough or success, whether it was like arrogance um, or complacency is probably not one, but psychological inertia where some, you know, these things have just become so well oiled and it was able to scale. Right. So that like, could that be aligned with scalability and, and kind of running lean where you, you don't even have to think about how these things operate and it allows you to go do something else. Right. So it, it can help you scale, but somebody might reinvent the business model, mm -hmm. which is the problem. So it's fine to say, well, geez, I'm uh, I'm Walmart. We can scale. But then we get Amazon that changes the whole business model. And oh, people buy online. Then, oh, it doesn't matter how good you know what you did was or how scalable you are. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an online presence, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. So scalability is one thing, but continual evolution and innovation yeah. is another. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have to attack our assumptions. I don't just say challenge your assumptions, attack your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Pretend that you're your competitor trying to put you out of business. What would you do to put you out of business, knowing your weaknesses, knowing what you do, what, knowing where, where the gaps are? How would you put you out of business? And then ask, why wouldn't your competitor do that? Wild. That's a funny No, exercise. I like that one. Like, uh, how would you put you out of business? I mean, that's a, like, if you look at market share and then you look at, like, competitors... I mean, but I guess we could also put that lens on our competitors or or on competitors. Sure. Be like, Absolutely. how would I how, how would I attack? How are we going to put them in yeah, business? Going to put them? <laughs> I, yeah, I uh, I don't necessarily know. Um, at least for me personally, like I never uh, uh, would hope that like my success has to pivot on somebody else's ruination. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's an interesting way to attack it. Being like, you know, if if uh, if this person has greater market share, how do we attack them, and how are we vulnerable? And then you kind of shore that stuff up, or at least shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, some companies change because they've got a real visionary leader. You know, the Elon Musk. Here's what I want to create, right? So his change, them changing what they do, isn't based on pain. But a lot of organizations don't have that vision, so it's got to be based on okay, what is the pain, or what is the gain if we respond or not? Well, if you can do both, if you can have some idea of vision, what we want to achieve and make sure there's a push as well. Hey, if we don't change, we've got a potential problem here. You bring both those together, you've got a pretty good case for change. Michael, how can, let's say someone in here is, or someone listening is like, they don't have this leadership role within the, their um, professional life, but I feel like this, a lot of these principles are applicable with your family and things like that. Like, uh, have you have you had anybody reach out to you and how they've applied it in their personal life or some of these principles it has improved their how they live outside of the office? Well, it, it's uh, funny you say that because the example that comes to mind is when my wife and I got our dog <laughs> and thought, OK, we get this dog. He's seven weeks old. We hire a dog trainer. And the first thing the dog trainer says, you know what? 
I don't train dogs. I said, well, what do you mean? We hired you, you're a dog trainer. She goes, no, I, I train people, right? This is about you. It's about what you consistently do for your dog to do what you want your dog to do. Hmm. And, and then we joke, you know, we, my wife and I would joke about this. Are we being consistent? And, you know, our expectations, our routine, what we're wanting them to do, what's good behavior, what's not good behavior. Because as you guys might know, whether it's with, with pets, with kids, with, with players, if you're inconsistent, they pick up on it in a heartbeat, right? Like people are bloodhounds for inconsistency. You say, you know, you talk product quality 10 times, but you tolerate poor quality once, what do they remember? You hold people accountable 10 times, you don't hold them accountable once, what do they remember, right? So people are bloodhounds for inconsistency. So does this apply? Absolutely, whether it's with pets, with kids, with, with coaching, uh, the same principles absolutely apply. And you know what? I think people want you to be consistent. They want to know what they're getting when they're interacting with you. If you're, if you're one way on one occasion and the next time you're totally different, they're confused, they're anxious, well, who's going to show up today? So I think people want that consistency absolutely applies in any interaction with groups of people or individuals. Nice. Anything else over there, McCulkin? Well, I mean, that's a secret Big like guy. for raising kids, you know, consistency, you know, making sure that mom and dad are aligned. I mean, Hold I, the company line, right? Well, I, uh, like, so um, uh, it's pretty interesting. Like um, if uh, you never feed a dog from your hand, he'll never come beg. Mm -hmm. But like if something falls out, like, and this is something my wife made a good point to me. She's like, if you feed them once, like they will forever expect that like, the, you know, like they are gonna get fed again. So that's why they're Absolutely. sitting there. And so it's pretty interesting to see people that have never really fed their dogs from your hand. And then, uh, you know, like I have, I have young kids and uh, our dogs like literally just follow the kids everywhere because they know they're gonna drop food. Right. So it, it's hilarious. So, so like the dogs, I mean, like there isn't a speck of food anywhere on the floor in our house. <laughs> and the kids just go by, they drop stuff. And like, like I'll, I'll look over there and my son will be sitting there and he'll be eating something. He'll be sharing it with the dog. And I'm just like, oh, God, how like I. Yeah, it's yeah. but it's it's a funny deal. No, it's, it's a good point on consistency. Yeah. And, you know, what makes it tough, too, is as a parent, is that you're on stage 24 hour 24 seven. They're watching everything you do, everything you don't do, everything you say, everything you don't say. You are constantly on stage. So you got to be really self-aware that you're sending messages you may not intend to send. Mm -hmm. And that's true as parents. It's true as coaches. It's true as leaders. You've got to make sure, you know, they are watching you and they're reading meaning into everything you say and do. What do you got? I got a few more here. Sure. All right. Some context for the question for you, Michael. Yeah. We're working with a young 25 or 22. 21. 21. 18, 18 year no. old. <laughs> and I'm just curious. Are times a change? And you have a, por a portion of the book that's called True Commitment Comes at a Price. Right. How can the seasoned professional communicate to this uprising workforce that they're going to, they need to give, I, I, I don't know how to communicate this. They need to give, or we need to see them commit and sacrifice before we commit to them, if that makes sense. We have to speak their language. Mm. Speak so, their language. Get on TikTok. The language, <laughs> <laughs> the language we may have been brought up on, on, you know, sacrifice, commit, that's not their language. Here's an example. Imagine you're a young boy, right? And you used to go outside and play. Imagine if your mom had said to you, now, you know, Tex, 
I want it's time now. I want you to go outside and play, and you need to play hard. You need to play real hard, and don't be coming back after an hour. I want you going for four hours hard. That's my expectation of you. I want you to be committed to that play. Well, you're thinking, what is this all about? You didn't want that. You just went out and played, and you ran around hard on your own, right? So we've got to speak their language. We've got to speak challenge, opportunity, fun, learning, growth, those kinds of things. And if we can speak that language, and if the work they're doing fits that language, then they're not going to be thinking, geez, I had to work really hard at that. They're just doing it because, boy, this is a cool project to work on. Oh, yeah, I'd love to work on that. Oh, how do we make this happen? So I think it's really about changing the language for today's, you know, today's workers, today's athletes, today's players. Coaching the same thing, right? The coaches of yesteryear, some of them would have a really tough time coaching today. So as coaches, as leaders, we have to be adaptive. So we really, we got to speak their language. Like the Pete Carroll, Bruce Arians example I gave you earlier, right? Pete Carroll said, hey, I, I love him. He's our guy. He's going to make a lot of kicks going down the road, right? We're with him. I think that's the kind of language they need to they need to hear. So it's again, it's about challenge, it's about opportunity, it's about working on cool projects with cool people and cool environments. The extent you can do that. But the second thing I'd say is that employee selection is absolutely critical mm -hmm. today. And remember, I said those traits are critical. So too often we just look for skills and experience. You know, have they done the job? Can they do the job? Well, we've all seen situations where people have got the, the resume, they've done the job, they can do the job, but they, they fail, they don't work out. So what traits tell you is, will they do the job? Do they have the right traits? And that's when I talked about being, are they conscientious? Are they competitive? Depending on the job, maybe it's they need to be, uh, take responsibility or ownership. Um, you know, uh, Epstein with the uh, uh, Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs, Theo Epstein, one of the things he determined was critical for success in player selection was a trait, how they deal with adversity. It was one year after the Red Sox, after they won the first World Series, they had melted down in the playoffs. And he said, why did they, we melt down? We had the same players. I had my same selection methods. And then he realized they didn't have the trait of being able to deal with adversity. So he started testing for and selecting people in part based on how they've dealt with adversity both as a baseball player and in their personal life. So with young people, you know, I want to know, are they competitive? Are they ambitious? Those are the two traits I want to see. Are they competitive and are they ambitious? And if they are, and maybe that was, you know, maybe that was, they were into gaming. Maybe they were a chess player. Maybe they were whatever. If they've got those traits and I can speak their language about the job, then we're going to get that effort and their commitment from them without having to call it, hey, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and commit and three years you'll achieve this. We have to speak their language. Do you have any interesting interview questions that can help paint that picture for the interviewer if they're competitive or just the positive traits? Sure. So it's called behavior-based interviewing. And this is a, a well-known technique in the HR field, behavior-based interviewing. Essentially, you ask people for an example of when they've done something or been, been in a situation. So we'd say, well, give me a, an example of a situation where you had to compete to earn something or you had to compete to make a team. Tell me about that experience. What was that like? What did you do to prepare for it? How did you think about it? What was the result? How did you feel about that? What did you do as a result? 
So if I can do some behavior-based interviewing, ask for some real world examples, because if you just ask hypothetical examples, what would you do if, then people make up the stuff that they think would be cool, but that may not be what they've actually done in their past. So I would ask them about their competitive experience, you know, whether it was in sports, whether it was in school or some other field where they actually had to compete to do something. Then I want to know about their goals and ambitions. And if they can't tell me any goals or ambitions in their life, then that's a red flag. Sounds and like I don't care. How big, yeah, I don't I don't care how big the goal or ambition is. I don't care if it's, you know, I want to be a really good father. Or I want to, you know, it can be modest. It can be great, whatever. But I want to know, do you have goals? Do you have ambitions? And have you competed and developed a competitive spirit? Well, something we run into, especially with that is, um, you know, you ask people like, hey, like, what's a competitive sphere? What are the goals? What are this? And they give you something, but yet they have done nothing to lead to it. Like that right. was something that, uh, um, so. What do you mean? Well, so when we do the block one event, um, I have my little eight mile moment. And so uh, we do uh, deal with a methodology online where people, we certify coaches and then we bring them in and they actually have to test for what we call our block one event and um you know there's a, a you know you have to not only coach an athlete you need to do some socratic method discussing uh different topics and different pieces and then the part that i do involves some form of physical training and then i do this basically the behavior-based interview where i ask people like tell me something significant that altered the trajectory of your life like uh i use the example of the eight mile moment which uh, from the movie uh, eight mile with eminem where you know he had his one chance and this is where he made this pivotal moment that altered the trajectory of his life and it was interesting, in the beginning, uh, people gave me some really amazing stuff, and then as time has gone on, it's people, I think, started telling me what they thought I wanted to hear, because uh, we have, you know, damn near 400 podcasts for us to listen to. But um, what was interesting is as people started giving me these things, I started asking, well, what have you done towards this? Like, if this is a goal or this happened, and uh, like that piece of like the lack of connection, like, hey, tell me something amazing you did. And then they tell you, and I'm like, okay, that was great. How did it alter your trajectory? You know, and they don't have anything that follows up. So I, th I sometimes think people have lofty goals or big ideas, but then I'll, I'm more curious and like, okay, that's great. Everybody's got great lofty goals, but what are the things that you've done? Like, for example, if I want to bench 600 pounds, that's great. Well, what do you bench today? 100. Well, how are you going to get to 600? I don't know. I'm just going to bench 600 pounds at some point in the day. Instead of sitting down and being like, hey, it's going to take me 10 years. I'm going to have to do this and this and this. So the and you know, John, that's a great example. That's exactly why we said that the right focus has to have the how as well as the what and the why. You know, the what is just a dream. But if you have the what, the why that propels it and the how, what's my game plan or roadmap? And you've actually shown you've taken some steps to do that. Now you see a person who's focused. You explained you do workshops, and so we have have your book, and it's got many tools and guides in there. How would you translate that to an in-person learning experience? So one of the things I'll do is a, uh, a webinar or an in-person session when when those days uh, those days come back, and typically it'll be a half-day session. And what I'll do is overview the the model of ruthless consistency. And then we'll get into some of the specific tools to help companies develop the right focus, some of the things you can do as a leader and a coach to create the right environment, and some of the things that you want to apply to make sure you're selecting and building the right team. So in a workshop, we'll touch on all three. Now, in fairness, you know, that's not going to give everybody, leave everybody fully equipped to do it all from A to Z, but it'll give people a basic foundation of, okay, I need to be ruthlessly consistent. You know, if I'm not, inconsistency isn't going to get it done. 
And then to understand those three main areas, right team, right environment, right focus, we'll touch on all three of those. If I'm doing it for individual companies, then they'll, they might just say, hey, we just need help with creating the right environment to help our people execute. What does that look like? Or others might say, how do we you know, develop the right focus? So it could be either of those or all of those, but it all revolves around that framework, right focus, right team, right environment. And then I'll challenge the leaders, of course, it's all about the right commitment because it's all just theory unless you do what you need to do to make it happen. Have you any conflict or times you ran into arrogance during a workshop or any of the negative traits that did they almost tested you to challenge and stand up against them? Sure, every now and then. I mean, not often, but every now and then that happens. And then I like to dive into, well, tell me about what you've achieved and how you've achieved it and what it take to, took to achieve it. And one of two things comes out. Either they weren't as committed or didn't achieve as much as they you know, thought they did or said they did. Or if they have, then they're a great role model for ruthless consistency. In which case I say, well, you've actually been ruthlessly consistent in doing these things. So, you know, people, typically the, the principles resonate with people, you know, much like the things we've talked about today. Yeah, you gotta, be, you gotta be consistent. If you're not, here's what happens. Now, here's what it looks like to be consistent. Here's why you've gotta have the how, not just the what. So typically it resonates with people. What do you got, In observation, I'd love these, these four poisons. Mm -hmm. Just in the in the realm of strength and conditioning and the yeah. the, the high school football coach, mm -hmm. these four. So having reps and opportunities, there's different strategies to appeal to these folks or show them. I think is very valuable for our audience to and have. I'm also thinking in the framework of like the weathered gym owner, you know, oh. like who's been beaten down, feels beaten down. A lot of what we talked about with um, one of our previous guests, James Fitzgerald is like this this industry of this micro gym owner uh like there's a shelf life to it and like there's a, a very real life cycle and crash and i think like a lot of this a lot of this these four poisons plays into that and especially owners or head coaches who can't develop their new or young coaches is probably steeped heavily in these four poisons in that framework or that dynamic well i think um I think a lot of people get into, especially into the gym business. I mean, and this is a little different than business. So, <laughs> and I'll just tell you why, because I think people have this kind of bit of benevolence, like, Hey, I want to go in, I'm going to open this place. I like to lift weights. I want to train. I want to try to, uh, you know, help people along in their journey to be stronger, more fit, healthier. And they kind of have this benevolent, like, this is something I enjoy and I want to share yep. this with people. So like, Hey, let's get a gym. Let's start this. Let's start, you know, and they don't, they never took the business approach to this thing. And, uh, I mean, I know it was true for me as I was retiring from the NFL, I like to lift weights. This guy's like, Hey, um, I had a, uh, you know, weights. He's like, Hey, can I train people here? And next thing you know, I had a gym. <laughs> never, Congratulations. Never really wanting a gym. I just wanted a place to lift weights. And, uh, and I mean, now that we have that, it's, it's a lot better, but I think, um, I think what's interesting, especially in business, different than the gym business, is I think when people start, they have an idea or let's say like, you know, you, like you said, you went and you worked for FedEx and then I have this idea like, hey, like this is how they're doing it. And, um, you know, next thing you know, you're over there working with Amazon, who's basically creating their own FedEx and their own postal service, which I think they're going to do in the future. Uh, but like I think in the gym space, like 
it, you tend to do a lot better if you come from a business background. If you're just some dude that likes to lift weights and you want to start a place, I think it'll never really grow. I think uh, that's why we've seen people almost have to backfill with a bunch of business systems and mm-hmm. kind of what James is doing with the OPEX. Like now, you know, you've shown passion here. Now I'm going to teach you how to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if people probably got into the gym business wanting to run a business and not necessarily just train people, they'd probably be a lot happier in, uh, in the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Mike, the final section of your book is called You Versus You. Right. Any advice, guidance to our listeners, our leaders out there, whether it's gym owner or coach, that they can avoid any of these negative things and then make the, me- the most of their opportunity? Yeah, and I, it's called You Versus You because that really is the crux of things. You know, look in the mirror and ask yourself, you know, am I willing to do what it takes to win? However you define winning. And, you know, the old coach is saying is, you know, there's a big difference between the will to win and the will to do what it takes to win. And you better understand that difference. Everybody says they want to win. They want to be successful. They want to be around winners. They want to grow a business. They want to make money. Are you willing to do what it takes? And there's no right or wrong answer. If you're not willing to do what it takes, that's okay. Then that might point you in a different direction. But if you really are serious about winning, you know, you have to be willing to do what it takes. So I want, I want you know, leaders, business owners to be very self-reflective. Am I willing to do what it takes to do that? And you have to understand there's going to be, you know, pressure. There's going to be anxiety. There's going to be uh, moments of doubt. There's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be volatility. There's going to be change. You know, am I willing to navigate through all of that? So I think that starts with just some introspection. Are you willing to do what it takes? Be very aware of what it is going to take, and then am I willing to make that commitment? So I want to put the spotlight on the leaders and say, you know, you make that decision. No wrong decision, but make sure you're honest with yourself because that's going to lead you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And if the, I guess if the answer is no, then do you have to reframe the goals? Or you might get out of the business. So mm-hmm. to your, you know, John's point, you know, geez, I've got this gym. But, you know, I really don't like what goes on with, you know, having to run this and manage people and all these things. You know, am I willing to do what it takes to grow a successful business as a gym owner? If the answer is no, that's okay. Then maybe you go be a personal trainer on your own or maybe you be a roving trainer or maybe you get hired out by somebody else. That's okay. Do what's true to you, but be very clear what it's going to take to win. So you might even change your trajectory. We had one instance where the guy said, you know, what? I realized I don't want to be the CEO. I don't like that, right? So decided he was going to hand over the reins to somebody and just, you know, become chairman. He was still the owner of the business, but always thought he should be the CEO because his dad was the CEO for his entire life. Mm. He thought that was his path. Helped him realize, you know what? That's not who I am. That's not what I like to do. That's not what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the plot of Inception as well. What? Just What's Inception? With Leo, Chris Nolan movie where they try to get the guy to believe or come up with the idea that he doesn't want to run his dad's oh, business. Oh, yeah. Wow. So Man, they got to incept. Got to rewatch that. And it, yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> I'm not trusting you. <laughs>
You've one been, thing you, you I'm trying have, to incept this. You, you, you have proven yourself not a uh, you, uh, Michael. Like here we go. Your uh, <laughs> viewing of movies and your rating. Uh, the fact that Twister is your favorite movie. You haven't they, seen everything it, is uh, Nolan Void. You haven't seen Twister in 24 years. You are not the same man as that first viewing. <laughs> Michael, we have a pension for going down these r- cinematic <laughs> rabbit holes and tying like the most obscure discussion topics on this podcast to a movie like Inception. It's really cool. it's. It's our, it's our it's, talent. It's really our saving grace. Uh, Michael, it's, question. It's a gift. You can't train it. It's a gift. <laughs> exactly. Have you seen the movie Vision Quest, or old school wrestling movie? I have not. Hmm. 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 That's right. That is the correct answer. So you, myself, and Tex, we're all in the same boat. Uh, it's, John it thinks... happens to be one of my favorite movies. <laughs> oh, no. oh, uh, I've, I've, I saw it in the 80s. Um, I, I had two older brothers. I got to see a lot of good movies. <laughs> the problem is is that these guys were raised by wolves uh, <laughs> and were not let out of the den and were not exposed to some mm-hmm. of the cinematic uh, excellence that I was as a young cinematic kid. Cinematic excellence. <laughs> Listeners, <laughs> go watch... Yeah, listen, listeners, go watch the YouTube, the Vision Quest trailer on YouTube, and you'll see some cinematic excellence. All right. First I mean, of all, it's it's Madonna's uh, first cinematic debut. She's just randomly playing in a bar. Uh-huh. It's got um, Matthew Modine, mm, big uh, name. <laughs> who? Well, the problem is you guys aren't children of the. I know, 80s raised like by always. the wolves. Yeah, ra- raised by wolves. I mean. Uh, dude, the fact that your favorite movie growing up involved either Seagal or Van Damme, and this guy's favorite movie is Twister, you guys have no cinematic credibility <laughs> in this table. It's Steven Seagal to you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's bring it back in. Michael, thank you for your time. Yeah. Tex, I think we're done with questions. Yes. Is there anything else uh, that you got for us, Michael? Maybe you could point people uh, to a URL, to your social, anything like that? Perfect. Ruthlessconsistency.com. Boom. Uh, the book has lots of examples from a lot of different fields, stories, a lot of tools, things you can apply. So you'll find a lot of ready-to-apply stuff there with some examples arranged from uh, sports to um, uh, symphony orchestras mm-hmm. to, uh, to cognac to the sport of cricket to the Berlin Philharmonic. There's all sorts of different things, but all to make the same points around Ruthless Consistency. Ruthlessconsistency.com, uh, that's where to get it. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Bing. I guess until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Michael Kamek on Instagram at Making Strategy Happen. His book, Ruthless Consistency, is available now on Amazon, and there's a link to it in our show notes. Until next time, bye!